0: We've come to Mark chapter 14, and in Mark chapter 14, we have reached verse 22 here in this section where Jesus is spending this evening, this Passover evening, with his disciples. And here in verse 22, it says we're going to look at verse 22 through 25. We, we need to uh, uh, also encompass verse 26 in here, and you'll see why as we go along, but Read with me here in Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 22. And again, reading from the English Standard Version. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The title of our message this morning is Salvation at the Crossroads. (laughs) Salvation at the Crossroads. There is a crossroads here. And there are at least four meetings that happen here at the crossroads. At the crossroads here in Jerusalem, two meals meet. At the crossroads here in Jerusalem, two lambs meet. At the crossroads here in Jerusalem, two adams meet. And finally, at the crossroads here in Jerusalem, two covenants meet. And we see them all gathered together, juxtaposed here in Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 26. And here we see salvation at the crossroads. Bridget and I had the privilege of attending a pastor's conference this weekend in Miami, the Miami Pastor's Conference. And it was unbelievable. It was the first time that we ever got to just go to a pastor's conference and, and, and receive, and not have to do anything. Um, and it was incredible. And the theme of that pastor's conference was What is the gospel? And we got to hear individuals like uh, Ken Jones and Michael Horton and others preach and address this theme of what is the gospel. And you you may hear that and say, well, wow, wow. why why would that be the theme? Isn't, Isn't that easy? Don't we all know that? Don't we all understand that? Nothing could be further from the truth. We don't understand the gospel in our day. We don't understand the gospel in our culture. We do not understand salvation in our day and in our culture. Far from it. If there is anything that we need to be concentrating on today, it is that question. What is the gospel? What is salvation? Because the fact of the matter is, we live in an age, we live in a time, and we live in a culture where I would argue that the overwhelming majority of people who will look you in the eye and swear to God that they are going to heaven are absolutely not those who would look you in the eye and swear that they've been born again that they are regenerate people that they are children of God are absolutely not are they convinced? yes they're convinced yes they're convinced are they sincere? yes they are absolutely sincere they are sincere and they are convinced but sincere about what? Convinced about what? That's the question. We have seen in our time, in our day, and in our age an erosion of the gospel. But more specifically, we've seen an erosion of theology in general. This message this morning will be a little bit different. There's some things that I want to read for you this morning. You know, I usually don't bring a lot of notes up here. Certainly don't ever bring books up here with me. Usually don't bring any notes at all or any books at all up here with me. But I want you to hear some things this morning. I want you to see the difference in some things this morning. I want you to get a a flavor and a taste of what I'm talking about this morning. As it relates to the decline of theology, um, there's a book that you just need to be familiar with. It's called No Place for Truth or whatever happened to evangelical theology. It's by David Wells. David Wells is a professor of systematic theology at Gordon Conwell. And basically, he's making an argument here that as a professor of systematic theology, he has seen a decline in interest in theology in general. I I saw this in my days in seminary. Nobody wanted to take theology. Everybody wanted the practical stuff. Who are the most popular professors in the seminary? Well, they were the preaching professors and the evangelism professors and the, and the missions professors who taught church growth. Those were the popular guys because what did everybody want? Everybody wanted to learn how to preach to draw a crowd. Everybody wanted to learn how to do evangelism to get people to pray the prayer. And everybody wanted to learn how to plant and grow a church. Nobody was interested in theology. Wells talks about this and here even in his introduction, listen to what he says. Many taking the plunge, that is, taking his theology course, and he talks about the fact that most of the guys leave it until last. They take everything else. And when you got nothing else that you gotta take, then you go ahead and you take your theology classes, you suck it up, you know, swallow real hard, and just get out and have it done. He says, many who take the plunge seem to imagine that they are simply following a path to success But the effects of this great change in the evangelical soul are evident in every incoming class in the seminaries, in most publications, in the great majority of churches, and in most of their pastors. It is a change so large and so encompassing that those who dissent from what is happening are easily dismissed as individuals who cannot get along, who want to scruple over what is inconsequential, who are not loyal, and who are, in any case, quite irrelevant. Despite this, The changes that are now afoot are so pregnant with consequences that it becomes, for me, a matter of conscience to address them. We are in trouble because of a lack of theology, because of a lack of doctrine. And here's a seminary professor who teaches systematic theology who says, the guys who are graduating from our seminaries have been co-opted. They don't get it, and they don't want to. And unfortunately, they don't have to. You sit in front of a church and are interviewed as a potential pastor, the last thing you have to worry about is being quizzed on your theology. Amen. That's the last thing you have to worry about. You do not have to worry about hearing words like supralapsarian or infralapsarian, you do not have to worry about hearing words like Augustinian or Calvinistic in your soteriology or Arminian in your soteriology or Amaraldian in your soteriology you don't have to worry about things like that why because here's what everybody agrees on doctrine divides theology is boring it is unnecessary let's just love Jesus and love people just go anywhere and that's what you'll hear just just right up and down the streets just go visit a few places that's what you'll hear Just love Jesus. Just love people. Why do we worry about all of these little insignificant things? Really? Let me ask you a question. Even if we decide that we just need to love Jesus and love people, here are a few questions. Number one, how do you determine that that is of utmost importance without theologizing about it? Secondly, How do you determine who Jesus is apart from theology? How do you determine what an appropriate love of Jesus is apart from theology? How do you determine which people you should love and how you should love those people apart from theology? So even if you want to argue that we ought to just love Jesus and love people, there are five or six theological questions that you've just assumed and jumped over in order to get there. What's the result of this? The result of this non-theological or anti-theological push is quite simply this. Our people are perishing for lack of knowledge. We don't know. We don't know what the gospel is. We don't know what salvation is. We haven't a clue. And as a result, the church has turned the corner. And we have seen in our day dangerous developments. Listen to this. Michael Horton in his book, Putting Amazing Back in Grace, says this. Grace is the gospel. The extent to which we are unclear about who does what in salvation is the degree to which we will obscure the gospel. Who does what in salvation? Are you saved? Are you really saved? Are you truly saved? Many of the questions that we deal with are the result of people not knowing what salvation is. For example, no no matter where I go, we have, you know, question and answer period. College campuses are notorious for this. Question and answer periods on college campuses. Everybody wants to ask certain questions. And one of the questions that people want to ask is about this issue of people falling away. And if a person comes to Christ, if a person asks Jesus into their heart, if a person receives Jesus as Savior and Lord, if a person, if they do that, and then later on in life they go on a killing spree or on a rampage, what say you about that person? Now what they think they're asking is a question about eternal security, but that's not the question at all. And I don't even go to the answer of that question. Here's where I start when people ask me that. I start with, whoever told you that salvation was about Jesus being asked or invited into your heart? Find me one place in the Bible where anybody invited Jesus into their heart. Find me one place in the Bible where the apostles admonished anyone to invite Jesus into their heart. It doesn't exist. That is not biblical salvation. That's the pollution that we've gotten from the four spiritual laws. Yes, I said that. Yes, I said it out loud. It's a dilution and pollution of the gospel. What do we have, for example, in the four spiritual laws? Listen to the last one, the four spiritual laws. You can receive Christ right now by faith through prayer. And then they say, you know, prayer is just talking to God. God knows your heart and is not so concerned with your words as he is with the attitude of your heart. The following is a suggested prayer. Now, by the way, this is right after they rip Revelation 3.20, kicking and screaming out of context. You know, Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, and I will dine with him and he with me. Revelation 3.20 is written to the church at Laodicea, not to lost people. It was never intended to be a salvation verse. That is an abuse of Scripture. It is an absolute abuse and misuse of Scripture when we use Revelation 3.20 and tell an unbeliever that Jesus is knocking at the door of their heart. It is not so. And right after the four spiritual laws abuses that verse of Scripture, here's what they tell people. You pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Then they say, does this prayer express the desire of your heart? If it does, I invite you to pray this prayer right now and Christ will come into your life as he promised. Listen, you could pray that prayer a hundred times and mean it and go straight to hell when you die. It's not a biblical prayer. It's not a biblical view of salvation. It's not. It's the norm, and a lot of you are very uncomfortable right now because I'm messing with your salvation experience. Because for most of us, if somebody asks us if we're a Christian, what do we go to? Yes, I asked Jesus into my heart. Yes, I invited Jesus into my life. Why? Because that's how we've been taught to define salvation in a culture that has run away from theology. So, back on that college campus, when that person says, I know people who've asked Jesus into their heart and now they live like the devil. How do you explain that? Here's how I explain that they're lost and unconverted. Yes, but they pray the prayer. I don't care. First John 2.19, they went out from among us because they were never of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. One of the evidences of salvation is you endure to the end. You don't endure, you were never in the camp. That's biblical salvation. That's not modern American easy believism. That's not your best life now. That's not purpose-driven life, but it is Bible. And unfortunately, there's a huge difference between the two. So we don't understand salvation. We don't understand the gospel. And you've got people, I mean, they will come to blows over this. Some of you got relatives like this. You finally got saved for real, truly converted. And all you wanted to do was tell them about coming to this true conversion experience. And all they heard was, you're judging me. You don't know my heart. God knows my heart. Huh, let me see. So what you're telling me is that you have had an experience that has changed the core of your being, but God's not powerful enough to work it to the outside. You can have that God all day, every day, and twice on Sundays. I don't want it Because he's not the God of the Bible. That is not salvation. And so we pollute the gospel and pollute salvation, and then this works out to a broader sense. Listen to this on mass marketing of the gospel. Listen to this from George Barna in his book, Marketing the Church. It is critical that we keep in mind fundamental principles of Christian communication. The audience, not the message, is sovereign. I want to read that again. The audience, not the message, is sovereign. If our advertising is going to stop people in the midst of hectic schedules and cause them to think about what we're saying, our message has to be adapted to the needs of the audience. When we produce advertising that is based on the take it or leave it proposition rather than on sensitivity and response to people's needs, people will invariably reject our message. The audience is sovereign. The goal is to get them to pray the prayer. And the audience is sovereign. So what do you do? What does Sunday morning look like in your average so-called evangelical church? It looks like a marketing campaign that's all geared toward the close. We got used car salesmen passing as pastors. And the entire presentation from the choreographed singers to the wonderful use of video, to the lights, to the drama, to everything else. It's all choreographed perfectly to get you to that point where you feel like your needs have been met. And that if you just pray this prayer, you can go from this level of happiness to this level of happiness, just like that. Don't believe me? listen to this, from the most popular church growth book ever written. Now I, I don't get, you, if you go to 10 churches in a 10-mile, just take the 10-mile radius around where we are now and just go visit any 10 churches, eight of them will be organized around the principles in the book, The Purpose Driven Church. It is the number one all-time most popular church growth book out there. And everywhere you go, you find churches organized around these purposes that are given here in Purpose Driven Church. And classes that are organized, you know, 101, 201, 301, 401, all this, even the terminology, it all comes from here. But what does Rick Warren say in Purpose Driven Church on this issue of evangelism? Listen, and I quote, It is my deep conviction that anybody can be one to Christ if you discover the key to his or her heart. That key to each person's heart is unique, so it is sometimes difficult to discover. It may take some time to identify it, but the most likely place to start is with that person's felt needs. This is the approach Jesus used. What are we after? Just pray this prayer. Invite Jesus into your heart. You are the sovereign. It all depends on you. God's done all that he can do. Now you have to do your part. And he's waiting. He's yearning. Can't you just see his arms open wide, begging you to come in? This is the picture that people are painting. Has anybody else ever been there? Amen. But is that the gospel? Is that salvation? It most assuredly is not. Now, I want you to contrast that with a couple of these statements. Listen to this from the Heidelberg Catechism from the 16th century. Question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, we've been doing the Catechism for boys and girls. We've been doing the Kitty Catechism, and we're working our way through that, okay? We get through that, and we'll work our way to another Catechism. Eventually, we'll get to Heidelberg. But in case you're wondering what it would look like if we were doing Heidelberg, just, you know, question number one, okay? okay just, 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 just question number one. Remember question number one from the Children's Catechism? Who, who, who made you? God made me. Wonderful. That's question number one. How about Westminster, the shorter catechism? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's question number one. That's great. Wonderful. Heidelberg. Question number one. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserved me without the... The will of, uh, excuse me, sir, preserve me that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's question one in the Heidelberg Catechism. That's the basics, the basics of what it means to be a Christian. You ask somebody in our culture, not just anybody, you go find somebody who's superintendent of a Sunday school department somewhere in the finest church that you know of, and you ask them what salvation is. They will not give you the story of Jesus and the cross. They will give you the story of themselves. The personal pronouns that are used will not be third-person singular. He, they will be first person singular. I. Are you a Christian? Yes. I had a terrible life. Then I invited Jesus to come into my life. Now I am happier than I used to be. That's what you hear. That's what you hear. Again, another contrast. Listen to this the canons of the Synod of Dort. Again. It' just talking about the basics. What is the gospel? What is salvation? What are we talking about here? Listen to this. For this was the sovereign counsel and most gracious will and purpose of God the Father, that the quickening and saving efficacy of the most precious death of his Son should extend to all the elect, for bestowing upon them alone the gift of justifying faith, thereby, thereby to bring them, infallibly to salvation. That is, it was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and those only who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father that he should confer upon them faith, which together with all other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit he purchased for them by his death." should purge them from all sin, both original and actual, whether committed before or after believing, and having faithfully preserved them even to the end, should at last bring them free from every spot and blemish to the enjoyment of glory in his own presence forever. Now you run until that. That's what salvation is. Salvation is not you and your sovereignty inviting Jesus into your life. He's the God of the universe. If He wants the door of your life open, He'll kick it in. Amen? He is the Savior of God's elect. And He will bring all of them to salvation. Not one of them will perish, not one of them will be lost. And so here at this crossroads, we see these things. First of all, there's two suppers that meet at this crossroads here in Mark chapter 14. And we understand what's happening here in this new covenant. Two suppers. First of all, there is the Passover meal. And secondly, there is the Lord's Supper. These two meet here. Now, there are a lot of evidences here that this was actually the Passover meal. Not the least of which is the Passover meal had to be enjoyed in Jerusalem, within the city walls of Jerusalem. Now, after you enjoy the Passover meal in Jerusalem, you could not leave from the greater Jerusalem area. And so they went out to the Mount of Olives. They didn't go over to Bethany. They stayed in the greater Jerusalem area. Um, Next, they were reclining as they ate. Fourthly, they also ate it in the evening. Now, in Jewish life, you ate two meals. You ate a breakfast meal early in the morning, and then later on in the early afternoon, you ate your supper. You did not have a meal in the evening. But this meal was enjoyed in the evening, which is further evidence that this was the Passover. Next, it ended with a hymn. Probably Psalm 115, 116, 117, or 118. They sang one of those songs because these were the songs that were dedicated for the Passover. So they chose one of those, 115, 116, 117, or 118, and they sang that before they went out. There was the interpretation of the elements. Which also evidences the fact that they were enjoying the Passover. And it was customary to give some money to the poor. You ever wonder when Jesus looks at Judas and says, what you must do, go and do quickly? You ever wonder how come the rest of the apostles didn't just say, he's the one? You ever think about that? That Jesus was basically saying, you know, I'm going to identify for you who the person is. And he looks at Judas and he says, Judas, what you must do, go and do it quickly. You need to go and betray me, go and do it quickly. You you would think that at that moment, all of the other disciples would have said, oh no, not Judas. They didn't think anything of it. Why? What you must do, go and do quickly. He's the keeper of the purse. After the meal, you go and give alms to the poor. But you want to make sure that you don't go over into the next day. So you got to hurry up and go do it. What you must do, keeper of the purse... Now that we've eaten the Passover meal, go quickly and give money to the poor. Because that's how you consummate this Passover meal. So he looks at Judas and he says, go and complete what we've started here in the Passover meal. What you must do, go now and do quickly. The irony, Judas is supposed to go and give money to the poor. Instead he goes and gets his 30 pieces of silver for turning Jesus in. And so here, they are at the Passover supper. We understand this from Exodus chapter 12. They gather here at the Passover to remember what God has done in delivering his people from bondage in Egypt. But Jesus institutes another meal here at the Passover. And in our text, he says, they were eating and he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take, this is my body. The cup, he says, take, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so the Passover meal, you interpret the elements and what are those elements? Well, you eat the lamb, you eat the bitter herbs, you eat this this sort of fruit puree, and these things all symbolize what happened back then in the Exodus. This is to symbolize the lamb whose blood was put on the doorpost so that we might be saved. This, these bitter herbs, are to symbolize the bitterness of our slavery. This purity here is to symbolize us having to make bricks without straw. All of these things had meaning. They were all interpreted. But Jesus comes to this Passover lamb, to this Passover supper, and he reinterprets the supper. Now, all of a sudden, he says, you've always thought that what was significant here was the bitterness of the slavery. But I'm telling you that this is about my broken body. This is about my blood that was shed for you. So here at the crossroads of salvation, two meals come together. The old meal, which pointed to the deliverance of God's people from Israel, and the new meal, which now points to the deliverance of God's people from their sins. I have a dear friend of mine, and last year at Passover, it was the first opportunity that he ever had to go and enjoy the Seder with a Jewish family. And it just just ministered to him. It was unbelievable. An unbelievable, powerful experience. And I, I encourage people, if you've never had that experience, to, to go and to have that experience. And he came back and his, I mean, his just, whole world was messed up. And he was like, Vody, why, why why didn't I know about this? Why didn't I know about those elements there at the table? Why didn't I know about those four cups of wine and that Jesus gives this blessing with the cup and it's probably the third cup and then he doesn't take the fourth cup and symbolically he says he's only going to take that one in the kingdom. Why why didn't I know about this? Why wasn't I aware of this? I said, well, probably because you've never been in a church where they practice systematic exposition and nobody ever got around to it because when you're looking for people's felt needs, they don't feel like they need to know how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover meal. So if all you're preaching is to felt needs, you're not going to get to something so technical and doctrinal and theological. That's why you've never heard about it before. And he goes, well, I I tell you what, every year I'm going to try to find a Jewish family and go and enjoy this meal with them. To which I responded, why? That's a done deal. That was foreshadowing. That meal's been replaced by another. It's great to experience it, It's great to understand what Jesus did, but Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could go back to old Jewish traditions and perpetuate them. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. It's great that you've experienced that, but but we don't go back. We go forward. Amen? That's one thing if you're a Jewish person, and that's part of your ethnic heritage Praise the Lord. Go get after it. Do it with your family and interpret Jesus in it every year. Amen? But it's another thing for us to say, for my Christian experience to be full, I just feel like I need to experience the Passover meal every year. No. There is nothing lacking in what Christ has done for us. Nothing. Two meals met here. The Passover meal and the Lord's Supper. And when we gather together each week, we observe the Lord's Supper. And we are looking back at what the Lord has done and looking forward to that moment of fulfillment when we will again enjoy this in the presence of our great Savior. Two meals met here. Next, two lambs met here at the Crossroads of Salvation. The people would have understood, again from Exodus 12, you go and you get a lamb, a male lamb without spot or blemish. And this lamb was slain and this lamb was consumed. By the way, all of the lamb had to be consumed. No leftovers from Passover. Amen? No leftovers. Why? Because you have to eat it in haste. It symbolizes that last night in Egypt. No leftovers. You're getting out of here. The death angel's going to come and they're going to let you go. No leftovers. Don't pack anything up. Whatever you don't eat, you burn, okay? The lamb must be consumed. Here they are, sitting before the Passover lamb, and we've talked about this before. And all of a sudden, they're realizing the truth of the words that John spoke when he saw Jesus. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here at the crossroads of salvation, two meals... Are juxtaposed and two lambs are juxtaposed the very lamb of God is here partaking of this meal of the lamb that symbolizes his own sacrifice did Jesus know he had to die you better believe he did just like the lamb that he ate that night had to be completely consumed he the very Lamb of God had to offer Himself as well as a ransom for many. Listen to this in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Listen to this in First Peter one seventeen: And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed for the, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, now not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the Lamb of God, without blemish or spot. Revelation chapter 5, beginning verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures, then down in verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The lamb. The Passover lamb was insufficient. But Christ, the lamb of God, was slain once for all. The just for the unjust in order that he might bring us back to God Two lambs met that night. One was insufficient. The other was wholly and utterly sufficient. So sufficient was the death of this lamb that if God were to decide tonight that he wanted a billion more people to be numbered among the elect, the lamb would not have to shed one more drop of blood for that extra billion. Not one. Completely and utterly sufficient was the blood of the Lamb. Two suppers collided that night. Two lambs collided that night. But two Adams also met that night on the crossroads. The first Adam and the second Adam. And two covenants met that night on the crossroads. And here's where I want us to camp out. I want you to understand this. Two main covenants. There are many covenants that we see in Scripture. And God is a God of covenants, but there are two main covenants, and all other covenants explain these two covenants. Number one is the covenant of works. The covenant of works is the covenant that God makes with Adam. And it's a very simple covenant. Obey and you will live. Don't obey and you will die. You and all those whom you represent. And Adam was our federal head. And so God creates Adam, perfect and sinless. He bears the imago dei, the very image of God. He is there in the garden. He is tinged in the garden. And even before the law, so to speak, that would come in Exodus and then again in Deuteronomy, God gave Adam a very simple law. All the trees in the garden, you may eat, but from the tree in the center of the garden, do not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so he has the law of God even there. And here in this covenant of works, it's very simple. Our federal head, Adam, has the opportunity As our representative to achieve the requirements in this covenant of works. But he does not. He falls there in chapter 3. Doesn't take long. Amen. End of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, we get this covenant of works. By chapter 3, it's gone. It's over. And so no longer is there this covenant of works. Now there is this covenant of grace. that's the new covenant this covenant of grace there was failure in the covenant of works but here's what I want you to understand Adam was our federal head so you and I were in Adam when he fell because he's our federal head let me explain it to you this way it's hard for us to understand this because of the nature of our government but understand it from the standpoint of kings now a king is a federal head of his people Now, as the federal head of his people, a king could do this. I'm the king of one nation. You're the king of another nation. And so you and I, we sit down and we're going to have a talk. Myself and King DiClemini, we're going to have a talk. The talk doesn't go well. I look at King DiClemini and I say, on behalf of myself and my people, I declare war against you and your people. I haven't even gotten back home to my kingdom yet, but every person who's a citizen of my kingdom is now at war with his kingdom. Why? Because I, as their federal head, just declared war. You see that? Because I'm the federal head. Adam was the federal head of all humanity, so when he fell, all humanity fell. You get that? So all of us are in trouble according to the covenant of works. Every last one of us, we can't get there from here. So God gives us the law. Why does he give us the law? Well, in Galatians, Paul tells us the law is a headmaster. The law is there to teach you. See, you don't come into this world realizing that you can't make it via the covenant of works. So here's the law to remind you that you can't make it. And all of a sudden, there's a law there. Have you ever noticed you never ever in your life want to touch a park bench? You just don't. Except one time, one occasion where everything in you says touch it. When? When there's a sign on it that says, wet paint, do not touch. You never thought about it. And then there's a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch, and what do you do? That's what the law does. The law teaches you that you're a sinner. You can't keep the law. And so here, we have the covenant of works. Jesus, however, as the second Adam, accomplishes what the first Adam could not. He fulfills the covenant of works. And here's where a lot of people miss it. They look at the passive obedience of Christ. And in the passive obedience of Christ, they say, well, of course, Jesus died for our sins. Absolutely, Jesus died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. However, there was also the active obedience of Christ. And in the active obedience of Christ, he kept the whole law perfectly, thus fulfilling the requirements of the covenant of works and being the mediator and sacrifice in the covenant of grace as well. Why is it important? This phrase that we hear in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Why did Jesus have to come as a human being, as a man? Why? To fulfill the covenant of works. So that he could therefore and thereby impute to us complete righteousness. So I was in Adam when he failed, and therefore I am sinful and unrighteous. According to Ephesians chapter 1, where was I when Christ kept the law? I was in Christ. So guess what that makes me? Righteous. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. If I was a Pentecostal, I'd be shouting and running all around this building right now. (laughs) I was in Christ. So his righteousness has been imputed to me. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now let me see, let me show you this. A lot of people think, oh, when it comes to the virgin birth, there's no big deal there. We can give up on the doctrine of the virgin birth. No, we cannot. Why? Because had there not been a virgin birth, Jesus would have been born in sin like the rest of us. But in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God says to the serpent, there will be enmity between you and the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. How ironic is that? How do you talk about people's lineage? The seed of the man. But God says... I will put enmity between you and the seed of the woman. And he, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. So the gospel is preached even way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So we have the seed of the woman, Mary, but not the seed of the man, Joseph. So that number one, Jesus can be our representative in two covenants. Both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace by virtue of his virgin birth. He also has actively obeyed all of the law and has kept all of the law so that he has complete and utter righteousness under the covenant of works and is thereby our representative there and worthy to be our representative in the covenant of grace. So when you talk about, for example, the perseverance of the saints... It's absolutely ludicrous to think that a person could lose their salvation. Why? Because if you are among the elect, you were in Christ when he kept the law. You were in Christ when he died for sin. You were also in Christ when he was resurrected. And you were in Christ when he ascended. You are now in Christ, seated in the heavenly places. You're in Christ. How do you lose that? You can't. You can't. We only think people can lose their salvation because we think wrongly about what salvation is. Salvation is not about what I do inviting Jesus into my life. Salvation is about what God did before I was born, before I was thought of in electing me and in Christ, keeping the law on my behalf. And in Christ, punishing sin on my behalf. And in Christ, raising me and seating me in heavenly places. In Christ, So just like Christ has been raised, I too, because I'm in Christ, shall be raised. It is absolutely inevitable if I'm in Christ. Nothing else is possible if I'm in Christ. It is unreasonable to expect anything else if I'm in Christ. But we have difficulty. Why? Because we, because of what we've been taught by our culture... Want to confer salvation on every person who walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. That is not God. That is not Bible. The majority of people who walk aisles and pray prayers have not been converted. They are not saved. Period. They've not been born again. They haven't. Salvation is a sovereign work of Almighty God from beginning to end. Listen to this. Romans chapter 5. Turn with me there. I'm turning the wrong way. Romans chapter 5. So don't don't feel bad if you've ever done that. The preacher just did it. I'm in Mark. I'm turning to the left to get to Romans. Romans chapter 5. Even Abraham... We saw that in Romans chapter 4, by the way. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So even Abraham was not being held to the covenant of works. The the, the covenant with Abraham was a covenant of grace. By faith, Abraham was reckoned as righteous. By faith, he was declared righteous by God. By faith, it's always been by faith, always shall be by faith. We had that catechism question earlier about how, how those who hoped in, 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 in God were saved before Christ. How were they saved? By looking forward to the work that Christ would accomplish. When he fulfills this covenant of grace, they looked forward to that. They were not hoping in the covenant of works. They realized that they couldn't do that. And even Abraham, the father of the faithful, why was he righteous? According to Romans chapter 4, it was credited to, to him. He was declared Righteous. By faith. By faith. Did God see something in Abraham? No, he's an Ur of the Chaldees. He's a sinner like everybody else. As someone pointed out this weekend, it's very ironic that the first Jew was a Gentile. Amen. Abraham was a Gentile. The Jewish people came from him. He's the first one. There were no Jews before Abraham. He's there, Ur in the Chaldees. He's a Gentile. God makes of him a nation. Why? Why? Because he's better than all the other people? Because there's something in him? Nope. Election. Sovereignty of God. I choose you. Why? Because I'm not running for God. I'm just God. So we see election even there. Look here in Romans chapter chapter 5, beginning verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So he was a type of the one who was to come. There's another Adam who's going to come. Told you there's two Adams who met here at this meal that night. The first Adam and the second Adam. They meet here. And so in the flesh, we have this idea of the representative of the first Adam. But in keeping the covenant of works, satisfying all the righteous requirements of God, we have the second Adam who does not fail as the first Adam did. And he also is the federal head of all his people. Who? According to him, all those whom the Father had given to him. That's referred to as the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. And so here it is. The Father makes a covenant with the Son and here's the covenant that the Father makes with the Son. The Son says, I'm going to give you all of these people. You just go die for them and redeem them and they're yours. Every last one of them. All of them. Every last one. So when Christ comes and lays down his life on the cross... He's not laying down his life and and sitting there on the cross thinking, oh, I hope somebody gets this. That's the picture of Jesus that's painted in the average church today. He's on the cross going, oh, oh, I hope somebody gets this. And before he hangs his head, he says, my part's done. The rest is up to you. No. Jesus says, die. It is finished. All of it. It's finished. So, what do I do? I just get redeemed. Well, what do I bring? Surely I bring something. You know, Martin Luther actually was asked this question early on in the Reformation. And he formed his response by way of apology. He said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to imply that man brings nothing to his salvation experience. He does. He brings sin and guilt. That's it. Well, certainly I bring my faith. No, you bring faith that you borrowed from God. Ephesians chapter 2 makes that clear. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Even the faith that you placed in Jesus Christ was a gift to you from God. And the evidence that you are among the elect is that you had that gift of faith. Amen. That is why even those who believe in the doctrine of election still preach the gospel and say, repent and believe. Well, why would you do that? If they're elect, then they're going to be saved. And If they're not elect, they're not going to be saved. Yes, but God has chosen to use the foolishness of preaching. And he calls all men everywhere, repent, believe. Now, I'm aware of the fact that even that is a gift that God gives. But just like the prophet in the Valley of Dry Bones... Those of us who proclaim the gospel say, Lord, please, cause your wind to blow and make these dry bones live. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. That's the gospel. He's not yearning or begging. He is calling all men everywhere repent and believe the gospel he's not trying to find the key to your heart through your felt needs he's not hoping that he can say just the right thing through the preacher he is simply making known through the proclamation of the gospel what he himself has known since the foundation of the earth Listen to this, about the covenant of grace, the second London Baptist confession, Confession, the 1689 Baptist confession, which is the principal confession of this church. Chapter 7, paragraph 2, moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall... It pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit, and make them willing and able to believe. I love that. And to make them willing and able to believe. Look at paragraph 3. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, Adam, and the promise of salvation by the seed of a woman... And afterward by farther steps until full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in the eternal covenant transaction that was between the father and the son about the redemption of the elect. There's a covenant of redemption. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality. Man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in the state of innocency. You can't get there from here. So, what happens at the crossroads of salvation? There is the juxtaposition of two meals. One, a foreshadowing of the other. There is the juxtaposition of two lambs, one, a foreshadowing of the other. There is the juxtaposition of two atoms, one, a foreshadowing of the other. And there is the juxtaposition of two covenants, one, a foreshadowing of the other. And now here in this room, we stand at the crossroads of salvation. And there are two responses. One response is, I'll take my chances. The other response is, I have no chance. And I throw myself on the mercy of Almighty God through repentance and faith as the Lord God would grant them. We are always at the crossroads. Here's what this also means. There are some of you who came into this room today and your Christian life consists of beating yourself to death. Why? Because you think you were saved by the covenant of grace, but you're kept by the covenant of works. You don't believe that the blood of Jesus was sufficient to get you all the way through. So you beat yourself to death and you have lists that you keep. Lists to which you hold yourself. As Michael Horton says, you're like those Pharisees about whom Jesus spoke. You you neither mourn nor dance. (laughs) Amen? You got neither one. On the one hand, you've turned your back on the law, so you know that you're not supposed to just keep the whole law, but there are little pieces of it that you'd really like to hold yourself to. And so you hold yourself to those little pieces, but you can't even keep those little pieces. So you don't even mourn like you were supposed to, because that's what the law is for. The law is to break you and make you mourn and make you say, I can't do it. So you try to take little pieces of the law that you think you can uphold yourself. So you don't mourn, but you don't dance either. You don't rejoice because there's no liberty. There's no freedom in your life whatsoever. And all you do is walk around holding on to this list. But what does Paul say in Colossians? Jesus took that list and all of the handwriting against you and he nailed it to the cross. How dare you take it back off? But that's what we do. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with me? Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Do you have rest? Then you haven't come to Jesus. You're beating the daylights out of yourself. And you cannot rejoice. You don't even like the gospel of grace. Why? Because you're terrified of the gospel of grace. Oh, no, no, no. Because people will take that for granted. And then they will live any way they want to live. No, if I am in Christ, that cannot be. Turn with me again to Romans. And look at the next chapter. Right after chapter 5. He anticipates that. You get a hold of the covenant of grace and this is what people say. You you preach that stuff and all of a sudden, you know, people just live in lawlessness. Chapter 6 of Romans. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God loves forgiving. I love sinning. Match made in heaven, you know. Is that what we do? Because that's the way people think. If If you believe this grace stuff. That's what it's going to lead to. By no means. There's that Greek phrase, may genoita. May it never be. Closest thing to cussing in the whole Bible. That's a strong, strong phrase. May it never be. By no means. Absolutely not. Nothing could be further from the truth. Look at it. How can we who died in sin still live in it? or died to sin rather, still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 he puts it this way, if any man is in Christ he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, new things have come. Listen, if you are still having to make your new creature, your old creature, act like he's new, he's not new. He's not new. Is Christ a duty or a delight to you? Which is it? Which is it? For the redeemed, he's a delight. For those trying their best to keep the covenant of works, he's a duty. He's a duty. But why do we live like that? Here's why we live like that. According to this old system that we're taught, almost everywhere that you go today, remember, the Lord has done as much as he can. Now he's waiting and depending on you to do your part. So according to that gospel, God is impotent to save you. It only follows that he's impotent to keep you. It's absolutely logical. If he's not powerful enough to save you, he's not powerful enough to keep you. So we just live any old kind of way? Nope, you can't if you're truly born again. You can't. You can't. You're a new creature. You can't live that way. You don't want to live that way. You don't delight in that anymore. It is Him who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. God will change what you want when you embrace the covenant of grace. He will change what you want. He changes who you are. And you read his word and you get into his word and you find out things in his word, and all of a sudden you hate sin just like he hates sin. And so it's not, okay, I'm going to find a list of things to do and I'm going to keep this list. No, you hate sin. You despise sin. You love righteousness, you rejoice in righteousness. Do you see this? Crossroads of salvation. There's one meal you can choose. Which one are you choosing? You want to go back to the Passover? Or you want the Lord's Supper? There's two lambs you can choose. You want the lamb that you have to sacrifice every year to remind you of your guilt that hasn't been taken away? You can have it. Or you can have the lamb who died once for all to make you righteous in him. Which Adam do you want? Do you want the old Adam? And do you wanna work as hard as you can to try to do what he created in sinless perfection couldn't do? Or do you want the new Adam who did what the first Adam could not and has offered to his people as their federal head what the first Adam could not offer You want the old covenant or the new one? As you stand at the crossroads of salvation, which side are you on? Have you bought the lie from our culture or have you embraced the gospel of grace? Do you get it? More importantly, has it gotten you? Has he brought you to that incredible, beautiful place of repentance and faith and forgiveness and newness of life? Or are you doing the double Adam two-step? Saved by one, kept by the other. The gospel has been polluted in our day. And as a result of the pollution of the gospel in our day, we don't even know how to be Christian. Here at the crossroads, there are two ways of looking at salvation. Only one of them leads to redemption. Let's pray.